0: Hey, cynical listeners. We're really excited to introduce the latest member of the family, Ta for Ta, with host Juliana Batista. Juliana is an ex-Schwartzman scholar, and since finishing up in Beijing, she's been working in China in various cities of the Pearl River Delta. Uh, Most recently, in Hong Kong, we were all really impressed listening to her show, which is about women from or working in and around greater China. These are women from many different walks of life who've all enjoyed professional success. The podcast will alternate weeks with its sister show, New Voices. Uh, We all found Juliana to be a natural talent with interviews. We liked her smart questions, her deep empathy, and the way she drew people out. So subscribe to this show, and we'll be back with Seneca next week. Don't forget to check out all the other podcasts in the Seneca Network, too. The Saishin Seneca Business Brief, Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, and, of course, New Voices. A very warm welcome to Juliana and to ta for ta. Enjoy the show.
1: Ta for Ta is powered by the Seneca Network. We're a new bi-weekly podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. A quick shout out to everyone at the team at China especially Kaiser Kuo, editor and co-producer. I honestly had a blast with the time I got to spend with Chenny Xu, corporate communications executive and gender advocate. We chatted about her early years studying gender in rural China, reflected on the Me Too movement, and even had a chance to discuss the importance of advocates in professional endeavors. I'd also like to note that the views expressed in this podcast are only Chenny's personal views, not reflective on a whole of any organization she's a member of. Okay, let's take a listen. Hi, everyone. Today, we are with Chenny. You have an extensive background in corporate communications and consulting. And even beyond that, I'm quite impressed with all the work you do outside your job to advocate for gender equity and female voices in media and journalism. So thanks so much for coming to the show. And let's just get right into it. Would you mind introducing yourself to listeners? My name is Chenny. I live in New
2: York and I'm a corporate communications executive at a fintech company. And I had lived in China for about almost eight years and just moved back to New York for this job. But in my spare time, I guess, I was been really interested in gender inequality. And actually, I moved to China to study that. And I've been really active in all the organizations in Beijing, which I think we'll go into a little bit in this conversation.
1: For sure. I think it's really interesting that you you went out to China to study gender equality. Actually, why did you decide to make that move? What originally attracted you to, to seeking out that field of study?
2: Yeah, so I think 8 years ago or like even longer than that, it was basically the financial crisis. So at that time, I think moving to China was a good idea. Mm. And when I got there, I quickly noticed that if you just looked at the society and how people acted, gender inequality was kind of at the crux of what China was about, you kind of see that that's, you know, the basis of the entire organization of the governing structure of families of how the entire society is put together. So I I got really interested in that, and then did a paper on female rural migrant workers.
1: And yeah, that's basically how it started. I think there's so many things that you could have written about right around that time. Was there something that happened? Or was there an article that you read? What brought you to, to writing about migrant workers in China and at the time?
2: Yeah, I think I just saw a lot of inequality in a society that had, you know, purported to be communist and quite equal. So I mean, in the reform and opening up period, you saw a lot of Economic inequality, like people losing their jobs. A lot of the um, people who lost their jobs from the Dunways who had the Iron Rice Bowl actually were women because they were told to retire or to leave their jobs. Not to mention the rural urban inequality. So you have this mass influx of workers from rural communities going into urban settings, but then they don't have the household registration or hukou. So they're basically secondary citizens in China. Mm. And then on top of all of that, you have the double identity of the female rural migrant workers. So the women and the jobs that they're doing and how they're faring in this new, economically different society and how their rights are being preserved or how they don't have any rights. So I thought it just kind of tied everything together. And, you know, how people say that there's no racism in in China, but actually I feel like there is, or at least there's classism. There's these two different groups of people that are treated very differently, the urban population, the rural population.
1: Yeah. Why why do you think people say that there is no racism in China? What do you think their their perspective is on it?
2: Um, I think the people who say that are... Uh, Chinese. So they've grown up in a quite homogenous society and, um, you know, and have been sort of taught that most people are Han ethnicity. You know, I think this, the state statistic, um, is over 90% is Han. But if you look at how people look, they look extremely different and that just, you know, can't really be possible. But so they harbor these perceptions that everyone's the same. And then the ethnic minorities are being treated very favorably because they say that the ethnic minorities have affirmative action when they go to colleges and things like that. Um And these are just pronouncements that the state makes, but no one really questions it. So that's kind of interesting to me. And having grow up, grown up in the U.S. and, you know, very much entrenched in identity politics and being Asian American, you kind of are just sensitive to these pronouncements.
1: Yeah, for sure. I, I think you do have such a interesting and rich experience. I know a lot of Asian, hyphen, something, those types of people uh, definitely exist. But you had this opportunity to to go back to China and, and study something that felt really relevant to you. How did you feel during the course of the time that you were first kind of looking into and digging into gender issues and migratory issues when you you went back there? What did that feel like?
2: That's a good question. It was actually very depressing when I got into it. So basically Mm. I finished this paper and I submitted it to a social policy journal and then that was the end of my academic career (laughs) because I'd gotten into PhD programs but decided against it just because I didn't want to be in that mindset. It pulled you down. Um, And that's when I transitioned to the corporate space and then eventually, you know, into communications. But then this interest never really left me. So I kind of incorporated it into my everyday life, like whenever I talked to my colleagues. And then I realized that they needed a lot of support. And, you know, we started the women's initiative at my previous company. And then I was heavily involved in the Beijing Women's Network as well. And then also was tangentially involved with lean in and the other ones like TEDx women and all that I I found that there was a burgeoning community of gender rights activists or people who are interested in these issues so I was able to continue to work on them
1: yeah I mean you've definitely become a de facto expert I think on everything kind of this intersection of women in China I mean you just, you've rattled off so many different things, how one thing kind of led to the next, but I'd actually just love to dig a little bit in t- into it. I mean, how how did one thing lead to the next? How did people hear about you? Did, did people find you on WeChat, give you a message? Was it things that you sought out and just kind of by the writing about something or do people come across mm-hmm. your work or hear that you were doing something in... corporate setting tell me a little bit more about how one thing led to the next and how you kind of got to to now where people say oh chenny shu she's someone that you got to talk to if you want to know anything about women in beijing
2: um that's really nice of you to say um i think eventually there were some papers that interviewed me but um in the beginning i think i just had very strong feelings about this like i feel like this is what i'm Most interested in and that I have to advocate for and that I need to talk to my Chinese colleagues and, you know, my expat friends about. So it's just quite natural. Um, I think the Beijing Women's Network grew pretty organically from four women, um, to over a thousand members now. And my friend Ella's, um, helping to run it. And, um, I I don't know. I think it was just being in Beijing, it was easy to form a community around these issues. And it was very topical all over the world. There's a groundswell of, if you want to call it feminists or, you know, gender equality movements. So I don't really know how it rolled from one thing to another because I'm just looking back onto it now. But I think it's just something I was really passionate about.
1: Okay. Well, then tell me about those early days of the Beijing Women's Network. There were four, four women getting together and... What was the premise? What, what sparked? Okay. Yeah. We're the four of us are going to get together and we're going to do something.
2: Yeah. Um, so I wasn't one of those four, but they're my friends. Um, and I consulted okay. with them, but okay. I think they just focused on issues that women weren't getting support on. Um, so whether it was career advice so talking about mentorship versus advocacy in this, in the corporate space or health and wellness. Which is kind of a new concept in China too, or Mm. it was, um, hard skills. So they had like coding workshops and, you know, tech knowledge for women. So it's just kind of based on what the community was asking for. And we were able to provide that. So I think career advice was probably the, the thing that was most important to the community at the time. And I have to say that these are all urban professionals. Um, So that is what they're interested in. And same with Lean In. I think that's what they're most focused on. But now there's other networks that I'm part of, like New Voices, uh, which is focused on Yeah, tell us a little bit
1: more about New Voices. Tell us a little more about that.
2: Sure, yeah. So this one um, was really interesting. So Joanna Chu kind of um, spearheaded this. It came out of a group of female reporters in Beijing, I would say, and other writers and artists— um and it, it in the beginning we were actually um this came out of the fact that if you looked at the bookshelves of Barnes and Noble's or an airport um kiosk and looked at books about China you saw that uh, most of them actually majority of them or maybe all of them are written by um you know Caucasian males uh, who spent time in China and then we just asked ourselves you know why aren't we represented? Why aren't we writing this? So this all started out as an anthology group that we were going to contribute to a a women's anthology about China. Um, And then it just kind of grew organically from that. And we have, you know, uh, several chapters around the world of people who are interested in the anthology. um, But we have a podcast also on this network um, and, so it's more artist, creative oriented, um, but also very much topical and talking about like things like the Me Too movement and, um, you know, what's happening out there.
1: Okay, so tell me a little bit more about, um, so there's an anthology. I think you also mentioned that there's a, a contact list of different women that, you know, if you're writing right. something about China, that they yes. have an expertise Yes. Why, why do we even need that? Why is that something oh. that's needed? So this is
2: an interesting story because, um, actually it's very necessary because some people just don't know which female experts to go to. Like I've had, um, pres- a president of a chamber of commerce in Beijing tell me that he didn't know who any women to ask for his panel on Chinese politics. Cause I flagged it to mm. him. It was a panel of, it was an event with maybe like 17 men. And it was a, a semi-annual event. And I just emailed him and said, why aren't there any women represented? This is just, you know, in this day and age. And he writes back and says, well, I would love to have a woman in our event but and be on stage. But I literally don't know any. Wow. So then I, ga- I gave him a list of, I think, 8 to 10 women that I thought could talk about Chinese politics and the economy, and then he wrote back and he said, "Oh, well, actually, I, I know a couple of them, and you know, they're guests at my house, and yeah, you're totally right; they could come and talk about it." So I just, you know, at that point, I realized, you know, was it an awareness thing? Was it laziness? You know, was it they really didn't know? And then at that time, Joanna had started the Google a Ex- female experts database as well, because I think you know maybe she found the same thing. And a lot of journalists, you know, end up citing the same male um, research analyst or research firm um, over and over and over again. And there has to be a diversity in views, like there has to be other people talking about China than these five people. So I think that's how it started. And, you know, it just grew exponentially. And you can see on it um, how many women there are who can be contacted about these topics.
1: Yeah. Almost like there's no excuse anymore. I just, I, I I can't believe that story and how, you know, it's almost like, Oh, I kind of knew, but I just, I, there's some reason that we can't exactly pinpoint why it's not happening, but now having a resource like that, it seems like there really isn't an excuse Mm -hmm. anymore. So I think that's, that's really interesting. Um, now, I mean, you've mentioned all these different groups in Beijing. Do they work together? If they don't, would you? how would you like to see women's groups in Beijing work together and find new areas to maybe explore?
2: I think the more groups, the better. So I wouldn't say like one group is doing something different different. They're all basically sure. serving different audiences and different communities, and they're all important in their own right. Um, I think the feminist activist groups probably need a bit more support from all of us, but that is hard in China because people don't want to step over that political line. That's the only thing I would say. Um, for the professional side, I think that's pretty good already. I mean, there's a lot of support for women like and workshops and things like that on career advice so the feminist groups i would hope would get more support also maybe groups that would highlight issues with rural women would i think be helpful because i think they're a massive part of the population and they're not really attended to at all in in these conversations
1: why is that
2: uh, I think because the groups that were started by women, it's just, you know, they're trying to help themselves. So it's not, I, I think that rural women aren't really at the top of people's minds, but um, I think it's coming. And then also uh, victims of domestic violence, there's groups that support uh, those women. And I think Me Too kind of has been a very organic movement that has um, grown in China, and that's very promising to watch.
1: Mm. From your perspective, how have you seen the Me Too movement evolve? I think, you know, there's definitely a narrative um, in the media. I mean, there was an incredible article that was recently posted in The New Yorker that really lays out, you know, why the Me Too movement has been successful in China, you know, how it's this decentralized movement and really gives women a chance to have their voice. But Uh, I think there's a narrative in the media. I'd be curious to see what your perspective has been on how the Me Too movement has evolved in China since its inception a little over a year ago.
2: I, I just have to give the caveat that although I've gone back to China five times in the past year, I haven't actually lived there, so I'm a little bit removed, but I am still in contact with a lot of the reporters there. I think I would say that First of all, the, you know, movement started with kind of Ronan Farrow's expose on Harvey Weinstein, the New Yorker, which led to a groundswell and of, you know, people coming out with um, allegations of repeat offenders. And that was really exciting to watch here. And that kind of spilled over into China. I think what you said about um, public opinion is the case right now that, you know, all of these cases if you would call them that are being tried in the court of public opinion because there isn't a court of law that we can really go to right now especially in China the judiciary system is not really supporting these cases and and, you know with the police or with prosecutors the law is very thin on it so therein lies the problem if you're trying to try something in the court of public opinion in China. That's going to undergo a lot of scrutiny by the government and then, therefore, censorship. So it's not surprising to me that, you know, all the Weibo posts have been deleted and the movement has been dampened, which is, I think, what you were alluding to in that article. But basically, Me Too is showing that millennials or people our age around the world are thinking the same thing and there are no more barriers. So people have access to the news, to the internet and to Instagram or whatever. So people are the same around the world and they have the same plights and, you know, issues. And this is coming out in China and it's really exciting to watch actually.
1: Yeah. I'd also love to hear from you if you think um, for listeners, if there's been differences in the way the movement has manifested in the U.S. versus China, I do think one Interesting unifying thing that I've noticed, but also has manifested a little bit different, is that by each individual telling their own story, and it's usually women, but individuals telling their story by putting it out there on social media. I mean, it's not only brave, but it also lets other people realize that, you know, they're not the only person. I mean, I think that's really core to what. What the hashtag, what the movement is standing for, but I think what what you're seeing in China is that um, it's just less talked about, and um, not that that's necessary. I mean, it's mm-hmm. I think because it's less talked about by having it out there and having people having this space to come out there, it's really powerful because there hasn't been that sort of openness to really talk about some of these issues, um, especially, especially in China.
2: Yeah, I think you're right. I think to have this space to come out and, you know, basically out yourself is extremely brave. Before, when people don't report, you know, there's a hashtag why I didn't report now. It's the, the reason behind that is because there was such a stigma associated with it. So if you did come out and say something about it, like in the 70s or 80s, like, women were worried this would mar their track record for life. I mean, you know, how could they get a job? It was just so shameful. But now the movement has come out, and people have realized that this has happened to every single woman, literally. So in China, you know, I've been really surprised to see um, women coming out too and not being afraid because their social fabric is so much stricter. You have your family, you have your aunts and uncles you have your neighbors like they all like it's a face based culture right so i'm you Mm. know i think the women are really brave to come out and share their stories and you know not be afraid of losing face you know for their community or for their parents or anything i think you know people are believing women in china which is also really great to see i mean of course there are those who don't and and I've heard you know Chinese men saying like oh well you know what about men who are harassed by women and you know they always try to flip it um that's their de facto <laughs> response right, and then and then I'm just like, well, can you acknowledge that this has happened and this is, you know, a huge issue in terms of power dynamics inequality, you know, how families work, how companies work and then how the government works. And this is like basically what it's based on is the power inequality between the genders.
1: Yeah, I have two questions. Um, but but first, uh, for listeners that might be unfamiliar with the concept of face and losing face, uh, what what does that mean? in this context that you're giving um around sexual harassment and rape and in families and face what what does face mean
2: Oh that's a big cultural translation question. I'm not sure if I can yeah. answer it. Maybe you can help answer it too. First um, I'll try I-
1: to add in where I can. <laughs>
2: I think it's I think it's universal. It's not just a Chinese concept, although people say that it is. Okay. So face or mianzi, it's Chinese, but um it's basically your self-perception, your pride and then on the opposite side of that shame if you lose face. Um I think it's very community based. Uh so, you know, this isn't just associated with sexual assault and me too, but you know, for women there's um the issue of marriage right so leftover women is um a, a term that came up in china and you know a lot of families feel like they're they lose face if their daughter isn't married or things like that or if they didn't get into a good school um you know it could basically apply to anything you know how, how would you describe it
1: I, I think you're you're pretty spot on i think within this context especially it's that um By coming forward with something publicly that you might impose shame or uh, tarnish something by by saying something, by being public and face kind of is this conception that I do think, I think you're right is universal, but actually really isn't given a, a terminology isn't given a name in so many different Mm -hmm. cultures, like in the same way that, you know, there's so many different words for snow uh, in, in certain languages, whereas there isn't that in other languages. I think it's just, uh, there's a really good encapsulation of that in China um yeah what what do you want Mm. did you want to build off that
2: yeah i think it just came to me that it's basically your reputation um Mm. and you know and that's the and it's an intangible asset in chinese society like it can be like traded basically and and especially for men it's extremely important like if they lose face it's just you know detrimental and you never want to do that in a public setting or in in a company setting. So, I think I think it's a patriarchal concept actually
1: now that I think about it. Why do you think it's a patriarchal concept?
2: I think um, you know, people use it to shame other people and they say, "Well, we don't want to lose face, so you shouldn't come out with that or you shouldn't say this or that." Um, but now, for example, women and me too are coming out and they just don't give a f about it. And that's you know, really <laughs> really powerful. In China yeah uh, it's kind of upending cultural norms
1: yeah why why is the gender movement in general so threatening to the the structure of Mm -hmm. Chinese government Chinese society um, specifically from a you know a national political point of view
2: right well because uh, it's the canary in the coal mine. I think um, China's very traditional patriarchal society and that's reflected in the governing structure. Um, and, you know, if you have this movement, any type of movement, really, it doesn't have to be gender-related. Um, the government gets very a- antsy about it. Um, but back to what I was saying at the beginning, why I was studying this, it's because I think gender equality inequality is at the crux of how china is structured and how it maintains its governing authority among the leadership so yeah i can go into that
1: go into it go for it let's let's explore that
2: with the political structure in china it's very difficult for women to be represented in it um I think right now less than a quarter of the entire party is female Um, you can see that you know not a single woman is currently at the helm of the party of any state province um, which is kind of the testing ground for top officials so you just don't see that system changing at all and um, and the fact that the leadership is made up of all men kind of reflects how society is structured. You know, from from the family unit up. Um, you know, some people have said that the family unit is the last, you know, bastion of like the little emperor. So you have literally the father of the family kind of directing how how things go, and that's reflected in the government as well. How so? Because so what patriarchy, it means that it's a male led society. And you mm-hmm. can just see that, you know, China is, it's not only an authoritarian government, but all the leadership is entirely male. And I think that there's just fundamental issues of inequality at home and at work. And you see that women are being told to take the double burden of work and work at home.
1: I think you're hitting upon something that's that's, that's interesting. And one of the things that I find interesting is that it, the business and political worlds are very distinct and very separate in China. And I think in a way that is very unique compared to some other countries and systems. And I mean, it's not to caveat this, it's not a significant amount in absolute terms, but they're more female billionaires in China than there are anywhere else in the world. And yes, that also has to do with population, but that is an impressive statistic and that we've seen women not only in business, but in venture, but in tech, in science, really succeed, I think, in this kind of opening up of China, but haven't really seen that happen yet in politics and I think you're hitting upon something and the reason why I'm nodding my head is because we haven't really seen that in politics in China and maybe it has to do with some of the dynamics that you're pointing out not to mm-hmm. to blanket answer this but mm-hmm. to to get a little bit further deeper into you know why are there so few women in the Politburo in, in China why are there so few women as governors of provinces why are there Mm -hmm. so few women representing uh the people of china when they hold up half the sky when Mm -hmm. this is said by the government and is said in so many of the interviews that i do Mm -hmm. um but yeah but does it happens in the business sphere but doesn't happen in the political sphere Mm -hmm. i don't know so that's kind of why i was nodding my head because i think you're you're putting a few things together for me
2: yeah, Um, well, I love that you mentioned the holding up half the sky statement that you get from a lot of people, because it's just not true. <laughs> I think, you know, when it was a slogan in the 50s, it was being used to bring in 50% more of the workforce, which was really smart, because it was able to, you know, bolster the economy. But then in the 80s, when the reform and opening up happened, look at who they laid off first. It was the women. Because they realized that they needed women at home to, you know, take care of the social welfare net. And even the 50s, when they had the women hold up half the sky, you know, in the workforce, they didn't ask the men to hold up half the sky in the household. So literally, Mm. like my relatives or my grandmother, like they had to work and then they had to work at home, which is a double shift, which the men did not have to do. They just stopped after the, you know, day of work. And it was still a very much traditional kind of separation of gender roles in the household, which you can see now with the stripping down of all of that, with the reform and opening up, you can see that that is still very much the case in China now.
1: When you were a kid, seeing that happen in your family, did that sit funny with you even at such a young age?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think growing up in a Chinese family, um, you just notice these things, Um Head on, and I don't know if that's because I then was educated in the US and then was made aware of these things, but it's pretty obvious. Um, but I think in terms of gender roles, that has never changed in China and it has never been equal. And if people say that it's equal now, they just are not telling the truth.
1: If, if you don't mind me asking a personal question, it's okay to say no. I think you've become really vocal about a lot of this and uh, your professional sense. Have you tried to birch some of these issues, maybe with people that are a little bit closer to you? And have you seen maybe some shifts in perspectives with either friends or family that that mm-hmm. are from ch- from China, live in China? And- yeah Uh, have an asian hyphen background
2: um i think that's really interesting yeah i mean i have spoken to you know aunts and uncles about this back when i decided i wanted to do a phd at the time i spoke to an uncle of mine and he literally said to me well if you do it then your future husband has to be a postdoctorate fellow so basically he said You know, your future husband will have to be more, even more educated than you are. And I was, and then I, yeah, and I was really taken aback. But, you know, I mean, this is just based on people's education and upbringing. You can't really change that. It's just ingrained in them. But I have spoken to an Mm -hmm. aunt um, about, you know, marriage and what to expect and, you know, what happened in her life. And she shared with me a lot of things. And she basically said, you know, she's like, never never get into, like, a marriage where you end up being a slave to your husband, which apparently a lot of marriages are like, where you have to, you know, cook them three meals a day, and that's just what they expect, and, you know, it sounds, like, absolutely futile, but this happens in many, many households, and I hear stories of domestic violence just from, you know, colleagues telling me, and I'm appalled, but, I mean, it's just, yes. It's symptomatic of a patriarchal society, and you know that's the end of the story there. And you know people need to know that, and that's why we need to fight against it. Back to the thing you were, you were talking about, business versus politics. So I just wanted to address mm-hmm. that.
1: Yeah, me too. Yeah,
2: yes, yeah, so I I agree. Like um, you know, a dozen female billionaires is a, you know huge and you know amazing. But out of a billion-odd people, that's actually not that much. But it's very impressive to see these women succeeding in this era. And I think that's because um, the kind of capitalistic business world is still kind of a Wild West. And they were able to rise as the rules were being formed, whereas the governing structure is very much entrenched. And, you know, and... Like you mentioned, there's just no pipeline for women to be represented at the top. You know, if there's no provincial governors, if there's no state party bosses who are women, you know, how can they be elected to the Politburo? There's no way. And this comes from just education, upbringing again, and then societal pressures and what people perceive of women in power and whether they expect women to be in power, which both is no. So basically, they perceive that women can't be A leader, A, and then B, that they would never expect them to be.
1: Okay, but what makes someone like Liu Yandong so successful? Is she just absolutely brilliant? Is she very well connected in a way that I just don't know? Why are these few almost token women so successful in politics or are we are they, are they not really successful are they do you think mm-hmm. they're there as a token I, I don't know i i'm actually really yeah, curious what, i think what those are, think are all really this.
2: legitimate questions and um very astute perceptions i mean these they might be token um, representatives also they probably are um, connected in ways that you don't know so i think that You know, people have been advocating for them throughout their career, which is great. Um, And also you do need an advocate in order to rise in any type of organization, especially in the Communist Party of China. So I think in each of their cases, it's very unique. I can't really speak to the specifics, but I think that, um, you know, these cases, like they both, they rose in their own unique ways. Because of certain political factions, um, but the fact that there's only you know a handful of them <laughs> is also very telling. So I wouldn't even see it as a success case, and I don't think that it's e- easily replicable.
0: Mm.
1: You, you talk about advocates and extrapolate it actually beyond politics, right? What what is an advocate and why is i think i hear the word mentor all the time i think that's why this is really interesting to me because i mean you think about Sheryl sandberg lean in yeah i mean in the states and the western conception of of women being successful in a professional sense it's about having a mentor um but you say advocate
2: yeah i think Sheryl sandberg wrote about this in lean in too i think she called oh, okay. it a sponsor yeah. Basically, a mentor is someone who gives you advice and um, that you can go to for advice, but an advocate or a sponsor will actually put their head on the line for you. So, for example, in, org- in an organization, they might be in a position where they could recommend you for promotion,
0: I for see. example,
2: or, you know, advocate for you behind the scenes for a promotion or, you know, or if you're not at the company, they can advocate for you to be hired Um, And I think this just goes back to the old boys network, where this is quite natural. And, you know, people would recommend each other and they would say, well, you know, I, I know this great guy, he's perfect for this role. So I think we're just starting to see that with women, but it's very slow. And I don't exactly know what why that is. But I think a lot of the more career leaning groups and workshops talk about this all the time. So I think it is something Useful in terms of the distinction.
1: Now, when I say the word advocate, you know, first thing that comes to mind who is that, and what role has that person played in your life?
2: Oh, you mean for me personally?
1: Yeah, for you.
2: Oh, yeah. Um, I think that yeah, I I did have a very good mentor advocate, um, at my previous company, and he kind of brought me along to all the projects that um, we won together and kind of taught me the ropes of corporate communications. I'm really grateful to him. And, you know, beyond that, kind of advocated for me behind the scenes. And, you know, that's how I got to where I am now, um, working in-house at this tech company. So it's, it's very serendipitous. I don't think it's something that you can just ask someone to do, I think it's basically fate that you bump into someone like that. Um, And I also had female mentors in Beijing as well who were really helpful in talking about their career um, progress and how they got to where they are. But again, like every single person's experience is unique and you can't really replicate it that way. And also some of the female mentors were older, so they were facing, you know, different issues in the workplace, where I feel like now at least there's a bit more awareness of gender equality and wokeness, so you can kind of use that to your advantage and kind of remind the company that, you know, it is supposed to be an equal opportunities workspace, and, you know, use the law to your advantage.
1: Mm. I think you're right that everyone's experiences are unique, uh, but I at least my own personal point of view and a really strong advocate that the more stories that you hear from women that are further along in their careers, uh, even if times have changed, I think there's a lot that you can really pull out and and learn from yourself uh, and learn for yourself. Is, is there any stories that stand out to you from these women in Beijing that, that kind of stuck with you now where you are in your career?
2: Um, Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure they would want me to share those stories on the air.
1: (laughs) Okay, I I respect Um, that completely. If there's a way to share it without, you know, giving away too many details that are revealing of the person's identity, that would be ideal. But
2: Um, yeah, I just can't think of any right now. I mean, there's just so many crazy ones. Basically, I think a lot of it had to do with like bad bosses, I think, bad male bosses and how they dealt with that. Um, Not to mention like harassment in the workplace and things like that. But most of the stories had to, um, were circling around the power dynamics in a newsroom, for example. And, you know, male editors versus female reporters and then, um, and things like that. So like power inequality. Um, But that's the case anywhere that you work. I think it's just especially egregious maybe in China because of the foreign correspondent community and you know the whole sex pat syndrome
1: oh there was an article that came out about that yeah um, Joanna wrote about it yeah right uh yeah tell us a little bit about the premise of that article and then why you think Mm -hmm. maybe some of the environment is still a little bit toxic
2: yeah um well, I mean, I don't know what um, her perspective was when she was writing it, but I think maybe your all...
1: perspective while reading it. And so, what what emotions? What yeah feelings? What insights did you take away from something an article like that? In the premise of that mm-hmm. article,
2: well, I felt like it was great that this was brought to light finally because I think a lot of you know male um, Caucasian whether they're foreign correspondents or in any other industries in China, you know, really kind of take advantage of the society there and whether it's gender inequality and how they treat women or just the power dynamics. Like, they've been able to accelerate in their career beyond how they would have done in their home countries and also behaved rather poorly at times. And I just think that that has been the case since, colonial times, and I don't want to call this neo-colonial, but I mean, they are able to do things in China that they wouldn't do back home and that people would admonish them for. But because it's in China, they feel like they have a a free pass to do whatever they want. So I was really excited to see her article come out, especially after the entire situation at the Foreign Correspondents Club in the past year.
1: What was that situation just briefly so it gives a little more context
2: yeah well there was allegations of sexual harassment against the ex-president of the foreign correspondence club and that kind of the whole case kind of split up the community into people who felt that this was finally it was me too as people coming out and talking about this and then the other side was you know trying to support him and feeling like he was a scapegoat and everything. And basically every conversation I had with anyone over the past year in Beijing had circled around that case. I think so. I think it was good because it brought these conversations to the fore. and it led to, you know, the sex Pat article and all the things that female reporters had, undergone um, you know there was male only soccer team that Joanna was able to integrate Mm. as the only female player but they ended up writing very incendiary comments in a WeChat group that were just completely egregious and you can't believe that you know these are the the foreign correspondents of like top papers in the world
1: yeah and you said that you had a lot yeah a lot of journalist friends even though you may not be a journalist yourself if it I think you have this unique perspective where you're almost an outsider looking in on this community. Uh, what sort of forces do you think in the future will be really constructive? Yeah, in terms of a- addressing some of this mm-hmm. division that comes about around uh, sexual assault an allegation, where. Some people are saying, you know, this didn't happen. This is ridiculous. This is a non-issue. Right. What sort of constructive forces, maybe not just in this specific community, but in other communities um, within the China context, do you think would be constructive forces? Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I think having more conversations among people is constructive. I think within the FCCC, a more diverse leadership is constructive. The board was made up of mostly male reporters. Now there's a lot of women who've been running for leadership positions so that the whole structure and the types of conversations and meetings have changed in tone. I think that we realized that the FCCC wasn't a court of law, that they couldn't really adjudicate on this issue that came out really clearly during the whole case And I think that now this has been brought to the fore, I feel like certain people would be less likely to act in ways that they did before. But I'm not 100% sure about that. But just to have this communication and conversations continue, you know, there's been lots of podcast episodes on it, which is really helpful. Also, you know, running maybe uh, workshops on what is sexual assault. My friend Yuan does that. Um, Because at the basis of all of this is basically, what are the rules, right? And some of the men, you know, in our age and older feel like they've been bamboozled, like they were working on a different set of rules. And now there's this new set, but actually it was just never defined. And, you know, now women are coming out and saying that this is not okay, so, yeah, I'm pretty hopeful about it. I think that it's going to continue the debate and in China and in the U.S., and I think we'll see what happens. But this happened for a reason, and it's to increase awareness of gender equality.
1: Yeah, I mean, you stole the words kind of out of my mouth. I was going to ask you point blank. Are you hopeful? I think it, it meaning in this conversation, You've mentioned certain people that you just don't think whose minds are going to change. And I think we've seen started to see movement in China. I'm curious, do you think there's people that are on the fringe, demographics or groups of people in China that are the right people to really be educating and targeting a lot of this education around? You might not have an answer to that. I was just, just curious.
2: Yeah, I I don't know what exactly people on the fringe are. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't I don't know the answer to that question, but um yeah, I think I answered it in my previous answer about whether I'm hopeful or not. I think I mean, I think looking forward, so in the US you've seen that some of these perpetrators have been brought to justice, so they've been convicted in a court of law. That is the final step. So maybe eventually you might see that in China. Maybe we won't because the law is just not really there to support women. Or it is, but it's not enforced. So that's kind of, I would say, a metric to see where this goes in the future. Mm.
1: I have a more lighthearted question for you, I think, really delve deep into some some difficult things to talk about, and I think you're right that the conversation is becoming more open. And I really appreciate your openness and your your generousness about being open about things. I think that's sometimes really difficult to do. Uh, but on a more lighthearted sense, you, you talk. I think you talk a lot about your Asian hyphen identity and how that is core to who you are. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, as someone who's not myself, but deeply interested and always just trying to learn more, are there things, um, that you can kind of point to that, that really capture that Asian hyphen identity and things you think about or concerned about just like the way of being?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think it's probably a unique perspective. I mean, a lot of Asian Americans who have spent time in China probably feel the same way I do because you're educated in a certain atmosphere and you're taught all these, you know, equality, um, you know, American values, I would say, um, which we are taught to be universal. And then you go to China and you try to apply them on Chinese society and you see that, wow, it's really not there. But then at the same time, like, is it, you know, should you apply these so-called universal values on society in China? And I would just say that whatever is equal and just doesn't have to do with American values or any type of thing like that. It's just when you see something, you know if it's right or wrong. So when I was in China, I noticed all of these phenomena. And I think because my eyes were open to it, I think it was it was a lot of information to take in, which is leading to this. Like what? Oh, just everything that I we, we were talking about, you know, on gender inequality. Yeah. Okay. Like, which led to this podcast, basically, okay. is like how I'm giving you this analysis. Yeah. Like, I'm not an academic or anything, but this is basically coming from my background and, you know, some research and my education and how I'm looking on to a society like that's the lens i'm looking onto it with and as a chinese ethnic chinese woman which is kind of interesting because you look at this whole nation and they're ethnically the same as you but um they're just so different as well um but i I think i just would just go back to education that's the end-all be-all of how people think and i think um people's thinking and values and the way that they view the world is formed When they're children, and it's very hard to change that um, as you grow older. And so, I think that's one thing that you know we could look into is you know whether Chinese educational system will change. But again, it probably won't as much because it's the way that the government can exert a certain amount of control over its citizens. But you know, with the openness of the internet increasingly that's impossible because people can easily access information from around the world. And I've met a lot of, you know, Gen Zers and, you know, younger millennials, and they actually think a lot in the same ways as their, as, you know, their American counterparts. So um, that'll also be interesting to watch because there's only so
1: much internet that the government can censor. Mm. Thanks for sharing that. I I think that's, insightful for for me just because that's not a perspective that i'll ever be able to have and so uh, it, it's it it's it's a it's cool to hear you know uh,
2: well I, first of all i think your perspective is very unique as well so it doesn't you know have to do with ethnicity but i have been seeing a lot of um diaspora chinese diaspora working as reporters in china and actually a lot of them are my close friends and i think they really add um a interesting perspective onto all of China, you know, and that's basically how New, new Voices started because um, we were educated out in the West, so-called, and then come into China and look at it from the lens of a female, ethnically Chinese woman. And I think that's markedly different from, you know, um, a Western-educated Caucasian man. So um, not to say one is better than the other, But I think, you know, if you look at their reporting, it's very unique. And, you know, for example, the Sex Pat article wouldn't have come out otherwise, I feel like. Um, And this is bringing the community together and in different ways and also bringing a lot of male advocates into the fore. Um, A lot of male reporters and, you know, people in the community are very supportive. So I think, you know, having the diaspora go back to China and see it from their lens is also um, very powerful.
1: I actually, I just, I also want to make one more point. Um, I I don't usually get too personal from my perspective, but I, I think you're hitting upon something as well. Part of the reason why I started this podcast was that people kept on saying to me in China, you're a Western woman. You're overlaying your Western feminist ideals onto our society and you have no place doing that. And I think that's that I, I I consider that fair. But I think you're right. Women that maybe from a Chinese perspective blend in more with their society just in terms of aesthetic and look, even though their their education and their mindset may be Western. I think are able to make some interesting inroads. And part of the reason why I started this podcast was I was like, I can't be the only person that thinks this way. There must be women in China that have been successful that have stories to tell. And I should have them tell the stories because I'm might not be able to, to do that myself. And so I think you're right when you're talking about these journalists that yeah. it might be the no. yeah. opening of a door to to something else.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's why podcasts are so great, because you are widening the voices that are represented in in, in storytelling. And hopefully this this is like an oral history. It's a record of history, right? So because, you know, to the date, history has been written by a lot of men. So hopefully now you can see the diversity in voices
1: and, and storytelling. So great. Thanks for taking the time out of your morning.
2: Yeah, no problem. Thank you so much.
1: And that's a wrap for today. Ta, for Ta is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks to Kaiser Kuo, editor and co-producer, as well as the entire team at Sub China. I always do love hearing from listeners, so questions, comments, general musings can be directed to ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista and this is Ta for Ta.